Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Another amazing episode for you today. Today, we're going to go in a little different direction than we typically do and bring an old guest back who's a fan favorite, one of the most downloaded episodes ever, Dr. Anthony J. But today, we're not talking about human performance. Today, we're talking about the data, the science behind vaccines and viruses. You guys are going to absolutely love this conversation. We do our best to be as objective as possible and simply present the information there's really some mind-altering information that's shared in this podcast, some things I had no idea existed, some truths about the scientific literature and what you should actually know is happening behind the scenes. And we do our best, as I say, not to get into to giving opinions. We try to be really objective. And uh, again, this is not a judgment either to whether or not you should do this or do that, or whether or not the government is forcing us to do this or that. It's none of that conversation. We're really just getting into understanding uh, what you need to know to protect yourself, what you need to know about this particular virus we're talking about and these particular vaccines we're talking about, really from one of the most trusted scientists I know. This man is so up to date with the data. And if he isn't, he simply says, you know, I'm not really sure. And that to me is so valuable. He's not just trying to throw his opinion at you. He's really giving us really, really objective information. You guys are going to love this conversation with Dr. Anthony J. His podcast is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, our greatest MCT powder, our greatest collagen powder that exists anywhere in North America, vetted by me. You guys know this is the highest quality and Bubs is hooking us up with 25% off in November. So if you're already a Bubs user and you're running low or you're somebody who's never tried Bubs, take my word for it. I'm literally staring at my bag of Bubs across the room that I use every single morning in my coffee to fuel my mind, fuel my day. And there's no better morning fuel for me than the Intelligence Coffee. And if you guys want the recipe for that, that's also at bubsnaturals.com. I have a video on there showing you exactly how to do it. Head over to bubsnaturals.com. Use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 25% off for the month of November. Guys, stock up because now's the time. This stuff goes fast. Thank you very much to Bubs for being a great sponsor of the show. Thank you very much for Anthony J for joining us to spread this amazing information. Thank you to you for being here and caring about your health. Enjoy the show. I have a PhD in biochemistry from Boston University Medical School. Um, and the topic that I focused on was sex hormones and cholesterol. Uh, and by the way, before that, I used to do HIV research. So I I actually created and designed viruses. I made lentivirus, especially. Uh, I did some of that for Alzheimer's research. We were creating mm -hmm. virus in, with DNA. You just basically design the DNA, put it into human cells, and then the cells would make virus, right? So I have a lot of uh, experience in this gain-of-function research. I wasn't gaining function. I was actually stripping function down. I was neutering the viruses to make them weaker rather than stronger, but we were using those viruses to try and cure Alzheimer's, for example. Um, so, you know, again, viral research, sex hormone research, and then I went to the Mayo Clinic and I did stem cell research for a while. So very diverse. It's just what I'm interested in. I'm interested in a lot of diverse topics. And now I actually quit Mayo Clinic because while I was doing a lot of that work in the past, I was doing DNA consulting. As you know, we've, we've talked together on this mm -hmm. a long time ago. and partly through your audience, honestly, and a lot of other podcasters, I've just gotten too busy doing DNA consulting and I enjoy it a lot more than just sitting in a lab doing research, not talking to anybody. And, and it helps people. It impacts people's health. So it's a little bit of coaching, a little bit of DNA consulting. It's 
looking at the actual DNA from 23andMe and Ancestry. As you know, again, I'm just more telling this to you. I literally audience. have my report that you gave me like four years ago sitting right behind me. I'm looking at them. Yeah, right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always looking at it. Yeah, and it's gotten better over the years, of course, but um, it's the same thing, right? I'm just looking at brain performance. I'm looking at diet. I'm looking at vitamins and hormones and detox. Like, how are your genes in your body affecting your sleep and affecting your athletic performance? And how can we, what's the root cause of issues? How can we prevent them from being issues? You know, it's a lot better to prevent Alzheimer's, for example, than wait until you have Alzheimer's or better to prevent heart disease than wait until you have heart disease. So anyways, I go through this whole diverse list of things and people love it. I've never spent $1 advertising this. And I've had so many clients. I have like a usually a one month wait list, sometimes three months. And then I have to bump my prices up to get the get the volume down a little bit. And then I drop mm-hmm. the prices back down. But um, the big contract that I got was with the special forces. So I do consulting with the U.S. special forces. And I've actually given a couple talks for them at their various summits. They have these summits and they don't allow me to basically go on social media and and tell people that I'm doing these things, but they're okay with me talking about it. And we keep it all very anonymous. I buy the DNA kits uh, for them. And so it's on my credit card or my company card. And then I send them the kits, they number them, they use an alias, it's all just Superman, you know, I'm doing Superman's DNA today, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing Catwoman's DNA today. And, but I sit and talk to them too, and help them optimize their situation. And everybody's different, and everybody can use, you know, health optimization through the DNA. So I've basically quit Mayo Clinic because I was getting too many DNA clients, partly, and then also partly because of the politics, honestly, I don't really enjoy zoom meetings all the time just wasting my time where people aren't actually accomplishing anything i didn't appreciate that they shut my lab area down and they you had to pretend like you were researching covid in order to even go and do research physically in person and research is physical you can't just sit on a computer all day and do research you have to go in there and work with stem cells if you're going to do stem cell research you know right you have to to grow them and you're constantly doing things with them like i was using infrared light to reprogram them and doing interesting things studying epigenetics as we, as you probably remember, we talked about this a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So basically, I was just frustrated with a lot of aspects of, you know, modern medicine and, and this idea that, like, if you don't find a drug, you're not performing valuable research, if you're not getting something patented. And, and the, the other aspect of research that I, I feel like a lot of people don't actually know is when you're doing a PhD or even before that, undergrad, master's, whatever. You're doing actual research. I mean, you're getting in there, you're pipetting, you're measuring things, you're putting stuff on cells, you're taking cells out of patients at a surgical suite or something. You're doing some interesting stuff. And as you do the PhD, you get more involved in that and you get it's more interesting and you're more hands-on and you're you're actually doing your own project and you're thinking for yourself and you're analyzing research studies that are in that field. And then you keep doing that a little bit afterwards, but it starts to morph into grant writing. It starts to morph into money begging. Mm-hmm. And it, your full-time job becomes begging for money from the government and political connections because you have to have crazy political connections because your name is on the grant. When you write a grant begging for money from the government for your project, even if it's an awesome project, your name is on the grant. And if you have like really poor political connections, like forget about getting that funded because like 5% of grants are funded, you know, maybe 10%. And these people are super competitive. Most of them have tons of political connections 
And it's not always about the project. A lot of the time, it's about the politics. You have to go to these meetings all over the country, which, of course, the government pays for under grants. And you have to basically, yeah, sure, you give a little presentation. Like I presented at the International Alzheimer's Conference in Vienna, Austria, for example. Some cool stuff, right? But And, and a lot of other conferences. But it's not so much the presentation. That's the one you put on your, your resume. The thing that really matters is sitting down and having beer with other scientists and trying to you know, like body, make friends. And then those are the same people that end up reviewing your grants and reviewing your papers because peer reviewed publications are also a little bit political, actually a lot political. And I wrote about this in my book on estrogen because it's really frustrating to me also that when I send a paper to publish, number one, my name is on it. So anybody who peer reviews that, they can see my name, which I think biases people because in a small expertise field, in a small field of expertise, Everybody kind of knows everybody, right? Just like you know all the bodybuilders. Yep. You know, if we're talking yep. about Ronnie Coleman. You know who he is. Maybe somebody else doesn't. Who who's not? You know, who's not in that totally. circle? Obviously, you know who Ronnie Coleman would be. It's the same with scientists. And um, so when you publish paper, your name's on the on the paper. So if they don't like you already, it's a problem. But also, furthermore, I actually pick my peer reviewers, hmm. which is crazy. Right. Like you have to when you're putting a paper out on Elsevier or whatever these, these science publication journals are. Yeah, you upload your paper and then they require you to select your three to five peer reviewers. So mm-hmm. I have to put names down for people that I want to peer review my paper. And of course, they have to have PhDs or whatever. They have to look like they're like credentialed. And usually they have to have uh, academic, uh, you know, like an, they have to have institutional standing or something. But so I can't just have like you you know, like peer reviewing my paper, but honestly, it's not that much different. I mean, you do a phenomenal job peer reviewing my papers compared to some of these people. And at the end of the day, it's all politics, right? You can see how that just opens Pandora's box of politics. And I hate right. that. Right. It's so, be crazy. Yeah, totally, man. So going back to the DNA stuff a little bit before we move on, um, one thing that comes up for, for me in DNA reports all the time is people often ask, or, or maybe they question the legitimacy of the research around DNA, because a lot of it's so new. You may only have a couple of papers with respect to certain SNPs and then tons of papers with respect to other SNPs, but then the population may not be relevant. I'm curious what, you, what you're seeing as far as uh, maybe reliability of these tests and be able to say, hey, based on this SNP, we know versus we think, you know, like how accurate are your predictions able to be when it comes to looking and reading DNA? Yeah, it's variable in terms of the software and things that's out there. When people upload their DNA to certain websites and they get these reports that they pay 10 bucks for or 100 bucks or their free reports on their health and tells them what to eat and all that, most of them are just full of shit, honestly. They're telling you to be go vegan and they're telling you all these weird things like don't eat saturated fat. And if you look at those studies, they're usually it's it's just super weak data. It's like 1.3 fold increased risks for things. Like, for example, a lot of people get concerned like they're going to get cancer. You know, you, you do these DNA reports and it says you have a 1.3 fold higher risk of prostate cancer or breast cancer, or whatever. 1.5 fold increased risk of lung cancer, this cancer, that cancer, the other cancer. And it's all these minor risks. And honestly, when they repeat those studies, like you're saying, with a larger group of people, those don't hold up. And so what I'm looking for is, number one, more significant uh, fold risks, like higher fold risks, just more significance. And then number two, I'm also looking at the mechanism, trying to understand as a biochemist, uh, what's that gene doing? Like what's the actual function of the gene? For example, 
and you'll be familiar with this one. Some people have a, a SNP issue with BDNF. They physically make less BDNF, and that's well established. So the actual health issues you know, are kind of variable. It's like, well, some people get higher depression. There's a little bit higher incidence of Alzheimer's. There's this, that, that thing. But the physical change in that SNP is you make less BDNF. Right. So again, the population study, sure, whatever. But the actual biochemistry is very interesting to me because you don't want to make less BDNF. Scientists call that miracle growth for the brain. You know, it's like, I've done this personally too. If you have cells growing in a dish and you add in liquid, like brain cells, you kill a rat, you take out the brain cells, you put in a dish. I've done this. Um, I used to go to the morgue every Thursday, by the way, and do brain cuttings on humans. Like we would take out human brains. But if you take out a rat brain and you grow the cells and you put BDNF on those cells in the liquid they grow on, they just explode with new shoots and branches and all this. It looks like a miracle Grow commercial. It looks like mm. a fertilizer commercial. It's pretty cool. And obviously, you don't want less of that, even if you're not really in, in, you know, disposed to depression or something like that. So usually, I'm looking partly at the population studies and a lot at the mechanistic studies of how the gene works and what that means and whether... You know, whether we can fix that, obviously, and there's almost always some strategy, preferably in line with what our ancestors did, that that we can change in our modern society. Like, oh, shoot, you know, you don't do very well with beta carotene to retinol, so you need to eat retinol. Carotene, for example, is vitamin A. They call it vitamin A, but it's actually a plant vitamin, right? So are you familiar with this yep. this distinction? Yeah, carotene yeah, retinol. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize, like... <laughs> If it says vitamin A on your multivitamin or something, some people don't convert that. They have like a 90% decreased conversion of carotene to retinol. Right. And therefore, they shouldn't necessarily be eating carrots and trying to get all their carotene from plants. I literally had a vegan last week from Greece who had this exact issue. And of course, he's got all these health issues. <laughs> and, uh, and he's an ethical vegan, so he like refused to eat plant, uh, to eat any type of animal, even fish and eggs. I was like, well, just eat egg yolks. You've got to get retinol. Retinol is in egg yolks. That's the animal version of vitamin A. There is no plants that have retinol. Your body, your eyes are not orange. When you eat carrots, they're good for your eyes, but you have to convert that to retinol before they're good for your eyes, right? And if you don't do that conversion, it's a problem. It plugs up your system. It plugs up the receptors. You need retinol. And again, that's not everybody, but for him, that was super important for a lot of people. And those are the types of things I'm looking at. And there's no way to know that without checking your DNA, is there? Yeah, Other than maybe a blood yeah. test having like super low vitamin A. Yeah, and even there, like it stores in your liver, so you're not necessarily going to see it in a blood test. So blood tests are a little deceptive. There's a lot of examples like that where people are relying really heavily on their blood tests. And, you know, it can be dicey. It's good to start with the DNA and then go to the blood test, I always think. So in conclusion on that question, like how reliable is, uh, like say if I come to you and I get a DNA test, like the the report that you offer me, how reliable is that? Like, would you say that that's, you know, extremely reliable, relatively reliable or not reliable at all? Yeah, well, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't reliable. <laughs> right. I'm just curious. I just, yeah, like, I get yeah. people that push back on me. Yeah, you yeah, know, it, it depends on the gene, right? Like some genes are extremely risky the SNP is extremely reliable in terms of how impactful it is. And that's where I come in as a consultant and say, this one is the gene to pay attention to. It's a factor five gene. Your blood's going to be thicker than most people. It's going to cause a heart attack if you don't thin your blood a little bit or whatever. Like extremely reliable in certain situations and less reliable in other situations. And I always try and make those distinctions, especially with something that's really impacting or really changing people's lifestyle. Like, oh, you got to eat this food or whatever. If, if I'm going to make that kind of claim, 
I try and make it only based on like really impactful genes. Mm-hmm. But obviously, there's an epigenetic component also. So there's DNA and there's epigenetics. Epigenetics do matter a lot. It's probably close to a 50-50 issue. A lot of people like to try and mathematically, you know, like say, oh, it's this percentage and that. I mean, whatever. It's it's kind of, it, it varies a lot, but depending on the gene and the epigene that you're talking about. But epigenetics are definitely super important, or I wouldn't have been studying them for the last few years at Mayo Clinic. But also, <clears throat> they're a lot more variable and a lot less studied and a lot more new and they're changing all the time and it's really hard to put your finger on it and the dna on the other hand never changes you spit in that tube you send it to 23 and me same if you do that 10 years from now it's going to be exactly the same how much was uh the covid uh, politic or politicking we'll say influencing the your your job at the mail clinic a lot i mean you know the problem is it wasn't it wasn't hurting me necessarily right now <clears throat> but if you're not physically in there doing research you know you can just skate you can float for a while on grants that you already have but eventually if you're not like constantly gathering new data and writing new grants right based on that new data then all of a sudden three years later you know what i mean like that stream just dried up you know right. and so if you build that dam and, and you're downstream of that dam that stream is going to dry up at some point and that's what was ha- starting to happen. And Zoom calls, like I say, they're not going to cut it. They're just wasting my time. They're wasting everybody's time. They're make- making me wear masks and stuff. They're checking people at the On a Zoom call? No, not this call. But a lot of companies <laughs> do that too, which is absurd. It's the stupidest thing of all time. Like get COVID through the computer, man. Every yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Well, the silliest part too is they're making spouses get vaccinated at a lot of institutions. Now, Mayo Clinic's not doing that. But that's the direction a lot of these big academic institutions are taking and that's absurd too and um if you don't mind i mean we can go into that topic sure yeah absolutely just shift gears because you know a lot of people obviously know like for the most part when you're picking up this virus you're breathing it in you know for the most part that's how people are transmitting and spreading it and picking it up um and when that virus is in your lungs you know it can go through those cells. It actually, it has this ACE2 receptor, right? And that's in your, on your cells, excuse me, the virus has the spike protein. You know, it's got these little like proteins sticking out. They look like little spikes. So it's perfect name. And that sticks to your cells, the ACE2 receptor. And then, then your cells take it in and you, your cells actually make more virus and it spits it out into your bloodstream and spits it out back into your lungs. Uh, because you have blood vessels right next to the cells lining your lungs, right? So it's going both ways. It's going back into the lungs, the new virus that your cells are making, and back into the into the bloodstream. So now your bloodstream is just basically uh, shuttling these viruses around, right? Pretty simple. P- people probably know this, but I just want to make sure in, in yeah. case they don't. Now, what, what happens with the, the vaccine, uh, of course, is you've got these mRNA particles you're injecting. They're actually packed in these fat balls. They're called liposomes. But you got these mRNAs, messenger RNAs. It's code. It's it's not DNA code. It's RNA code, but it's code for making more spike protein. So you inject that into your cells in your arm, or wherever you can inject it anywhere. And those little fat balls with the mRNA, they fuse to your cells, and they dump the spike protein mRNA into your cells, and then your cells start making spike protein. And then the idea is that your body makes antibodies to the spike protein, and 
that allows you to basically have less symptoms if you get COVID or whatever because you have antibodies to that protein. And by the way, there's about, there's all, almost literally an entire alphabet of different proteins on this, this COVID virus. So like A, B, C, D, E. Sure, S, like just pretend S is the spike protein, but there's literally an entire alphabet of other proteins. So the beauty of actually getting COVID, the reason natural immunity is stronger is because you're getting immune s- system response. You're getting antibodies to almost an entire alphabet. Right? It might vary. You might not have antibodies to spike protein at all. Uh, so when you get an antibody test, you might not even test positive because you might have antibodies to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Or most of the time you do have antibodies to spike, spike protein if you have natural immunity, but you also have, again, an entire alphabet of antibodies. And so, but again, you know, back to the vaccine, you're just getting the letter S. You're just getting one. And the problem with this idea that like, oh, your spouse at your job needs to get vaccinated. Oh, your kids need to get vaccinated. You know that's politics and you know that's just money, money grabbing, because it's not based on science, which a lot of this isn't. And the reason for that is even if you get vaccinated, those antibodies your body is making are in your bloodstream, right? And if you're breathing in COVID, like say you go to Walmart, say you're vaccinated, you go to Walmart and quote unquote vaccinated. It's not really a vaccine. It's more like a... I'll just call it a jab, right? Let's say you got in a jab, you go to Walmart and you breathe in some COVID particles. Well, those cells in your lungs, you know, they're still making some COVID. They're not into your blood yet. There's no antibodies in your lungs, right? So you still have like COVID replicating and re- basically your cells in your lungs are making more COVID. And guess what you're doing with that? You're spreading it back out. You're breathing it back out, you're, whatever. So you're still infectious, and sure, when it goes into your bloodstream, you might have an antibody response to that spike protein. It's not as it's not as strong and sustained as uh, the full alphabet response, right? And the reason I say maybe you might have a response to that spike protein, you might not, because there's going to be constantly different variants coming out. The virus is making millions of different variants constantly, right? Like in every single individual person. Um, and then, of course, the vaccine, they've changed a couple letters of the mRNA code so they could patent it because you can't patent something that's found in nature, natural. So they have actually modified it a little bit. So it's not even as good as, it, as the natural version, but they wanted to get the patent to make more money on it, of course. And that's OK. I mean, I obviously understand that, but that means that's not as it's not as specific as the actual spike protein. I'm getting a little bit technical, maybe. But the point is, even if you're vaccinated, you're still spreading COVID, right? You're still breathing it out to people. So you're not actually doing anything different. So the idea that like, oh, now my wife needs to get vaccinated, even though she's staying at home and homeschooling kids or whatever, that's absurd. And again, it's not based on science. So there's so many aspects of COVID here that have become politicized, of course. And I think a lot of it is that the drug companies, the individual individual people there aren't, are not unethical. They're not trying to do the wrong thing. They're not trying to, you know, like basically downgrade people's health or trying to fool people but the system itself has just been so established to work behind the scenes to influence these politicians to make more money and basically to work in a really corrupt system that it's just a system that's basically in motion and you can't stop it so that's the frustrating thing about it is it's a corrupt system it's not an individual person it's a system that's that's again not uh, honestly not investigating or thinking about the science but instead trying to make more money and that's you know that's always a problem when you're especially when you're talking about 
uh, mandates. And that's the biggest issue, I think, in our country right now is this idea that we need to mandate literally any type of a drug, especially a vaccine. But anytime you talk about forcing somebody to get a drug, that's not natural. It's not found in our ancestors and things like that. Injecting, especially anytime you inject something, there's always additional risks. Uh, I think that's a nightmare scenario, right? Like, I think that's the worst thing that we could do as a society. And I'm not just talking about America, but certainly in America, it's a big battle right now. Um, so that's kind of where I stand on the thing. And I don't, I don't hate vaccines. I don't hate the COVID vaccine. Of course, people just automatically want to lump you into a category of anti-vax or whatever. And I don't care if people want to do that to me again, it's not going to hurt my career. So I'm, I'm at the luxury of saying that. A lot of doc- doctors in, in America would also say the exact same thing, but they can't, they can't because because these medical institutions have leverage over them. They have them by the balls. They have them by their medical degree, and they can take that medical license away. And and that's huge money. I mean, that's like seven hundred grand a year or zero grand a year. <laughs> like yeah, totally. that's a big leverage. That's a huge amount of leverage to make doctors be quiet. But behind the scenes, I guarantee you. And by the way, my brother's a medical doctor. My dad's a medical doctor. Behind the scenes, the doctors across America are very skeptical. They're waiting as long as they can to get the vaccine in many situations, at least the ones that are thinking about this. And of course, there's plenty of doctors that are getting it right away, too. So I think that that freedom should be the ultimate way to approach this. Like whether you want it or not, you do the research and then transparency in the research. That's the next big step, right? We need actual studies. We need to see the studies. We need to have access to those studies so that people like me can look at them and doctors can look at them. Uh, and then, of course, we need to be able to go on YouTube and talk about those damn studies without not getting... be censored. Yeah. Do you even shut That's down? A, I get shadow banned pretty bad, but yeah. I haven't done a ton of stuff on COVID recently because it's just, you know... <laughs> I, I honestly don't want to get shut down. <laughs> totally. So where's your stance on the um, one efficacy to um, you know, health concerns around the vaccine? Because you get a lot of people kind of throwing that out there. Like the government's got some concern, the, the health, the medical community's got some conspiracy in trying to kill us all. You know, you hear that thrown around there. And then we hear like, hey, it's just not effective. And then yeah. we see data saying it is effective. And so there's all just this like convoluted conversation around like, uh, each side's kind of uh, having, you know, putting up their their peacock feathers to try to defend their side. And it seems like there's no one that's got a real answer. Yeah, the po- the problem is the transparency. So, again, coming as someone who's in the in the industry, right, like behind the scenes, we talked about peer review and how you can manipulate that by having your buddies peer review the paper, which is pretty much what happens. We talked about grant writing and how your name is on the grant and you can pretty much do the same sort of thing. You know who's reading your grants. Uh, with studies, with, with drug companies, most people don't realize behind the scenes you don't have to release those studies. Like say I invent a new statin, and there's a dozen statins out there, but I got another one now, yay. Um, I don't actually have to release that study. Did you, did you know that? No idea. Yeah, so like me as a professional scientist, I can't look at that new study. It's not on PubMed, it's not like on some public database. Uh, it's hidden by the drunk, like the drunk company did the study. So they can tell the media that this statin lowers cholesterol this much or it, or it causes this much less heart disease, like 95% less heart attacks or whatever. They can just make up numbers. I mean, I'm not saying they do. I'm just saying they can. 
because I can't get that study. Even behind paywalls and all this stuff that you have with academia, you can't get a hold of those studies. Now, if it was a statin drug in this example, somebody's eventually going to have an adverse reaction, right? Somebody's going to take that drug and have a heart attack. Somebody's going to take that drug and have a stroke. And their family's going to sue the drug company, right? You're going to have a bunch of lawyers. They're going to sue that company for that statin. Then the drug company has to release the study, okay? So the beautiful thing is we actually get to see that study finally. So usually they do release the studies. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying they don't have to. So they will eventually because the lawyers will bring it out, right? Now, here's the problem. With vaccines, they don't have to release those studies. Just like in statin, just like anything else. But it gets worse because in America, we have a separate vaccine court. We have an entirely separate court. If people have not heard of this, Google vaccine court in America. It's a real thing set up by the government. It separates the drug companies from getting sued with vaccine injuries. Um, when you have, you know, like, again, you publish or you don't even publish. You, you, you create a drug. You've got the studies. You're telling the media it works 95% of the time or whatever you're telling the media. Tell them whatever the hell you want nobody's seeing these actual studies, right? And unless it's just snippets of what people, what they want you to see. But basically this is why the, this is the problem with like, well, what's in the vaccine? What are the actual ingredients? Where is it? So when these things come out, they, there's no studies that are being released. We're just hearing this from the media as scientists, just like yourself. And then what happens is somebody has a heart attack. Somebody has a stroke. They sue the company. They can't sue the company. It's a vaccine. They have to go to the vaccine court. The vaccine court, still, you don't have to release that study. You never have to release those studies because it's a separate court system. So the lawyers can't force these. So in other words, the vaccines are on kind of a different level for potential uh, manipulation, you know, shenanigans, frankly. And I'm not saying you have that for sure. I'm just saying it's potential. So the idea that like we should force people to get vaccines opens Pandora's crazy box of all kinds of potential shenanigans because you don't have to release studies so they can put whatever they want in these things. And we, even the professional scientists don't know about this. And again, you're not going to hear thunderous, uh, you know, like social media outrage because the doctors can't say anything. And most professional scientists won't say anything because a lot of their grant buddies that they're sending their grants to at NIH work for the government. A lot of these people, like there's this network of people and a lot of them are getting grants. They're very dependent on the government. So they don't want to say anything bad. They're political. They're, want, they're trying to be careful. They're trying to please everybody. I mean, you know how it is. Every, politics, usually, you're not trying to take a really loud, strong stance in one direction or other. You're trying to kind of water it down, keep everybody happy that's reading your grants so you get funded again. Your job is a bit dependent on that, that sort of thing. Um, so it requires scientists like myself to kind of come out and say, look, here's actually how the system works. Here's why you should at least be skeptical of it. And you can do independent third-party studies on the vaccine, which companies do, and those are beautiful things. You know, Chris Masterjohn's been doing a lot of reading on those and yep. getting into a lot of technical detail. And I'm not to that level yet, just for lack of time at this point, but there's constantly changing. You know, there's always new stuff coming out. It's 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 tricky, but you know, in terms of in terms of the mandate, that's where I stand in, on that. And the actual efficacy varies with different people, different populations, but I think it's pretty clear that for children, it's, 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 it should, it's very dangerous. It's risky, in my opinion, unnecessarily, because, you know, their immune system is phenomenal against this thing. It's better to have a whole 
alphabet of antibodies instead of just one antibody and the risks outweigh the rewards from the vaccine perspective. That's how I'm thinking about it. That's how I'm looking at it. Everybody's entitled to their opinion until we get censored. <laughs> yeah, so right until you get shut down. My daughter had it. She was sick for about 18 hours and then she was fine. And so when I say sick, she like sat down on the couch for a couple hours. And she's like, oh, I'm not feeling so good. And then she was fine. And like the entire family said it, I had it. I had a really high fever for 24 hours and it was fine. And like, it it seems like it's being blown out of proportion unnecessarily. And, and you know, there's so many people living in fear, man. This is why I really want to do the podcast is like, maybe a lot of people to have some information to help get them get out of fear. So my one question that I kind of lead into is, um, you know, one, uh, what is the path in your mind? Like, it, so the whole government's making a big deal of this saying, if we don't vaccinate the whole world, we're going to die. Uh, is that the truth? It, it seems like some, some research came out uh, actually just very recently from the CDC. I don't know if you saw where it's like uh, of the deaths, there was like less than 1% of people who had zero comorbidities and over 84, 86% had six comorbidities, which is nuts, right? Like, so I'd love to just have you talk about the you know potential risks here. Again, I, I don't know how, how accurately you can talk to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. There's no question the comorbidities are the real issue here, not so much the COVID. And sure, it, it definitely, well, first of all, it it definitely varies with different people. And right when COVID came out, I made a video on this um, because it's a genetic thing. So that, remember in the beginning of this discussion, we talked about COVID has this spike protein sticking out, right? And that binds the ACE2 receptor on cells, and then the cells take it in and make more virus. That's how it yep. works in your yep. cell. And this reset, it's like a, a on, like the the door handle on your cell is ACE2, A-C-E-2, ACE2. Um, and that's what the virus used to open up and get inside your cell, get in the door. Now, there's actually 14 different genetic variants of that ACE2 receptor. And again, I knew this right away. As soon as the, there was a study, almost immediately when COVID happened, when COVID first you know, came out of China, uh, there was a study within literally within months um, that talked about the mechanism of how this thing gets into your cells. It's from the spike protein on the virus, sticking to ACE2 receptor. So I went to the DNA database and looked it up, and there's 14 different versions, which means some people are going to have version door handle number one. Some people are going to have door handle number two. All the way up to door handle number 14. Which one's open easier? We don't know. We still don't know, which is absurd, because my video back then was to say, well, let's study the 14 different versions and see which people are at high risk, risk based on their genetics, because you can look at this from something as cheap as 23 and me. $100, boom, you can tell which risk which door handle you have that allows virus entry into your cells. And the, the problem with this is that there is a lot of variability, right? Like some people have a door handle that really lets those virus come in and they're healthy as can be in certain situations. Now, that's very rare, I think, but it does happen. Other people have amazing door handles where they're just like locked pretty tight for COVID and the COVID can't get in. Right. And there's a whole spectrum. Now, this is another interesting little side note on this, that this allows countries like China um, kind of an interesting, you know, interesting angle from a bioterrorism perspective, meaning you can design a virus when you have a population as homogenous as China, as genetically similar as China. And by the way, I do DNA consults for people from China. Um, but they're very similar. Like they a lot of times have this Asian flush gene. It's called alcohol dehydrogenase, you know, whatever. They have a lot of similar genes that you don't see very often when you talk to Americans, right? Like how many Americans do you know that they get an Asian flush? You know, like 
there's a lot of similarities in, in these people's genetics, just purely from their ancestry. And let's just say, on, in theory, that when you look at that population, the Asian population, they have door handle number one, right? Which doesn't really open that well to the virus. But now let's go to America. Well, shoot, America's a melting pot. We've got crazy amounts of diversity over here. We're going to have, you know, like we're not Asians for the most part, although there's definitely Asians in America, Asian Americans, the whole thing. But for the most part, we're going to have like door handle number two through 14, let's just say as an example. We're going to have people with number two, number seven, number six, number eight, whatever. It's very diverse in America. So there's a problem here where you can develop a virus that only open, you know, that doesn't open door number one, but opens all the other doors sure. very readily. Yep. And you can literally target an entire country with things like this or the other way around, honestly, right? Like you can design viruses from a terrorist perspective that open door. And I don't think that's what's happening, but I'm saying like these countries are definitely looking at our r- ridiculous response to this minor, <laughs> like this minor amount of issue relative to something like the Spanish flu or something like you know, these historical viral outbreaks from hundreds of years ago. And they're saying, oh my gosh, look at this ridiculous response for such a tiny impact. I mean, frankly, it is a tiny impact. Sure, we all know somebody who who is devastated by it, but we don't know 10 people who are devastated by it, right? And that could be the scenario if we start designing these kinds of things and using these as weapons. So Again, we need to study these door handles, the genetics, and we need to look at individual risk. And, you know, and, and of course, like I say, with the freedom aspect of it, people need to be free to make their own choices here because, you know, for the most part, it is comorbidities. Even if you have the worst door handle imaginable among those 14 that allows the virus in really easily into your cells, if you're healthy as can be, I mean, the risk is absurdly low. Of course, you don't know exactly the number. Everybody's different, but it's absurdly low. It's it's pretty much common cold scenario if you've got a good metabolism. So what are the, the common, um, what does the data say that the common interventions are to maybe help with support of the lung tissue, the epithelial tissue, or the ACE2 receptors? Is there something specific we can do to bring down, obviously, just like general health things, go outside, vitamin D, basic things, but, but you know, specifically, are there any... Um, supplemental interventions or anything that you see as like, hey, this is a really effective intervention right now, either to stimulate the immune system or to prevent the transmission? Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, hydroxychloroquine came out a long time ago. The reason it was so interesting was because uh, it either I can't remember if it either binds the spike protein or it binds the ACE2 receptor. It binds one or the other. I think it's the door handle. It binds the ACE2 receptor. So it blocks the virus from opening that door. Um, and so that's a really interesting thing. Like, how come we're not looking at that? Well, because there's so much money tied up in the vaccines and there's so much, uh, th- th- there's just so much of this, you know, of this polit- political Fauci stuff going on in the background and media issues and anti-Trump issues in the media that, you know, we didn't really take hydroxychloroquine seriously, which is unfortunate because it does bind the ACE2 receptor and block that virus from, from opening that door to some degree. But what's even more interesting is ivermectin because ivermectin not only binds the ACE2 receptor, but it also binds the spike protein. So it works on the door handle, but it also works on the virus to block it from binding to your cells. And it's the exact same problem, right? Like we're seeing that corruption behind the scenes that again, it's not one person. It's just the system has been caked like it's been baked into that cake that corruption 
for, for decades, right? They've kind of slowly just kind of crept into the, the politicians and the work and the pharma corporate leaders working together and creating laws and suppressing competition and suppressing this idea that vitamin D helps or supplements can help or let's not look at that. Let's look at the patented drugs. And so it's so ingrained in that system, this corruption, that they've talked about it as horse medic medicine or horse dewormer or whatever, but it's a pretty exceptional uh, drug, I think, based on the research. And of course, there's going to be institutions, you know, with board meetings and that say, oh, our prestigious, well, you know, like well uh, honored, like PhD group of people says that ivermectin is terrible for you or whatever, which is absurd. I mean, it's, it's borderline aspirin in terms of you know, like side effects, but um, you're going to have that because of the corruption. And that's almost a good red flag to show you who's corrupt and who's not. Like, if I'm being honest, because that's what we're seeing, you know, in the media, right? Like the media has has shown their hands. You know, like they've shown us how corrupt that they actually are in generating fear, in suppressing ivermectin, in manipulating the data, the, the always reporting on the cases instead of the deaths and always trying to inflate it. You know, for example, South Dakota, they've never really had a mask mandate. They've never had social distancing shenanigans. I've been over there all the time throughout this whole thing. In fact, when they shut down my research area at Mayo Clinic, I literally just went over there and lived over there for a few months. And I was talking to one of the gas station guys and he said, yeah, somebody from the, uh, I don't know if it was the CDC or what, but they, I think it was the CDC. They came in with six foot stickers and they came in with the hand sanitizer and said, you have to put this in here. We're going to shut your gas station down. And he said, go shove it up your ass. That's what he told the guy. <laughs> and I was like, man, only in South Dakota, you get that kind of people because <laughs> you can't shut down all the gas stations. So right. just screw you. Because at least in, in South Dakota, for example, the state is backing up those individual, supporting those local businesses and those individual people for in the, in the direction of freedom. And by the way, South Dakota, the numbers have been amazing throughout this whole thing for the most part, you know? And obviously you can say, well, yeah, the population isn't very dense or whatever, but that's the kind of stuff the media should be picking up on and having that, those nuanced discussions instead of just the fear-based discussion. So, you know, basically throughout this thing, we've all been able to see, you know, like which institutions are corrupt. They're all showing their cards. They're all showing their hands. We're playing poker and these people are flipping over their cards and they're showing you that they're bluffing and, at least it's opened a lot of people's eyes. I talked to somebody a couple of days ago on a DNA consult that said they used to vaccinate their kids with everything. They've got little kids now that are now they're very, very skeptical about vaccines. They're not anti-vax, but they're much more skeptical because of this, which is sad, unfortunately, right? Because, uh, you know, like if you can't trust the COVID vaccine, then it does call into question other ones. But at least people are thinking for themselves. And I think that's important. And I think you have to have the freedom to think for yourselves, which that's the big fight we all have to kind of unite behind, irrespective of whether we love the vaccine, we hate the vaccine, or, or ivermectin, or whatever the thing is, honestly. We need the freedom to have the discussions. Right. So I tend to live in my own little bubble, man. But recently, I've been having uh, like outsiders penetrate my bubble, and I'm hearing the dialogue they're having amongst themselves. And it's so interesting that, you know, they're like, hey, we're going to follow the science. We're going to get the vaccine. So I'm curious what you think they need to know, what else they need to know to be able to uh, kind of discern between authorities, right? They, hey, this person's in the media, this person's in the media. How do I know who's actually telling the truth? Because obviously with your education, you're like, well, I can tell that's BS because I've seen the data. 
you know, call it 50 to 80 percent of the population has n- no idea what science is. They're just simply following what they what they watch on you know, the average local news station. So what are the things that we haven't already mentioned that they need to know on how they can discern between what's useful and what's not? Yeah, it's hard, right? I mean, that's the problem with hiding all this data behind these closed doors when and even the lawyers can't draw it out from them. Um, <clears throat> but I think, you know, if you're super concerned about COVID, you know, and especially symptoms and you potentially you're elderly or something like that, or you've got asthma, I mean, the vaccine is probably going to be better with this mRNA vaccine, create some antibodies and get less of a response when you actually get COVID. Um, hard to say for sure, right? Again, I don't totally trust necessarily the, the, the stuff that we're being told, but that's, that is my sense, you know, and that's what the data is showing. Um, now for kids, I think it's the opposite. Again, you know, I think the data is pretty clear that kids don't need the vaccine. It's, it's more likely to cause harm in my opinion. Again, whether the data is clear enough yet, we don't know, but the data is pretty clear that COVID basically doesn't harm children unless they have a number of comorbidities and all that sort of thing. Um, so maybe if you're in the comorbidity camp, you know, the vaccine is something to look at. And of course, now Pfizer's creating a, a version of, uh, of uh, ivermectin. They call it, I call it Pfizer-mectin. It's basically trying to bind the ACE2 receptor and the COVID, but it's got a patent. So they're going to be super pumped about that in a few months. And, you know, there's a lot of other aspects like that. You know, there's another vaccine that's coming out that's probably going to be better. But, I, you know, I don't want to speculate. I don't know for sure. So honestly, the long and short is I'm not totally sure. And I'm especially not sure about the long-term data. And I think that's what most people are, are really uh, skeptical about yeah. is that what if this damages your heart five years from now? That certainly has happened in many situations with many drugs. Uh, you know, and I mean, they, they, they keep them on the market for like 30, 40 years in certain situations. You know, they had this drug. Um, it's called DES, diethylstilbestrol. Uh, it was for women that were pregnant and they, they wanted to have less morning sickness. So they gave them this estrogen mimicking drug. And it literally caused miscarriages and it literally caused birth defects and stuff like that. And they kept it on the market for like 30, 40 years. You can look it up on Wikipedia, DES, diethylstilbestrol. And a lot of it took 10, 10 plus years to see the ramifications of it. So it was like, well, this is super safe. Look at this. It's amazing. If you were to rush that thing out on the market, I mean, the animal studies were a little sketchy, but so were the COVID animal studies with mRNA vaccines, right? But who knows, you know, we're not animal, we're not rats, blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, 10 years later, it's a disaster. But even when it was clear that it was a disaster, they kept it on the market. Now, I think we've learned from that. And I think if we started to see like 10 years later that people are getting damaged hearts from it, hopefully they would shut it down. But we have no idea about those sorts of things right now. Right. So, so again, the long, the long and short answer from my perspective is I'm skeptical, but I don't know. And again, if I had a bunch of comorbidities or I was elderly or whatever, I'd be a big fan. I like, I like that they're developing these things. I like that they're, you know, they're working on it. There's good scientists here as well. It's not, it's not that somebody's trying to be subversive and trying to create something to manipulate the population. They're definitely trying to make money, but they also are doing it in a way to try and get rid of this COVID situation, this COVID uh, pandemic. But you know, again, I'm, I'm always skeptical, probably more than most people, because again, I work behind the scenes. Yeah. Have you seen any of the data on um, the negative effects coming through from the vaccine and like what, 
what's common. Yeah. So I've, I've seen some a vast array of things. And I'm curious what you've seen is actually being accurate. Yeah, it's mostly related to heart cardio, car, cardiomyopathies and heart damage and different forms of that. Um, but you could always make the argument that natural COVID does the same thing, right? When mm-hmm. you get the actual virus, you see some damage to the heart and whatnot. Um, and this is because the spike protein itself is very toxic. You know, it's a protein. So it's, you know, people are like, well, it's a protein. It's fine. Well, like, so is black widow spider venom. You know, that's a protein. There's proteins that are toxic. And if you're injecting those proteins into your system, you know, the spike protein, even if it's via mRNA and then your body's making spike proteins, that damn thing is toxic. And so what would be interesting and has not been published and what I honestly do want to know is how much of the spike protein are we creating in our systems when we're injecting it? So when we're injecting the vaccine, there's probably millions of mRNA particles and there's probably millions of spike proteins that those that your cells are making and spinning into your bloodstream to get that antibody response, right? Millions of spike protein. And again, it's toxic. When you have the actual COVID infection, there's usually like a thousand to three thousand particles of COVID initially, I think. Um, it's not that outrageous. Um, but how much spike protein is there, I'm not sure. And how much gets shedded into your bloodstream, I'm not sure, through your lungs and through your cells. But um, it'd be nice to know the actual quantity of spike protein from an actual infection versus the quantity of spike protein we're putting into our cells, for example. Right. There's a lot of questions. This is the reason it takes a long time to really tease out some new technology like mRNA vaccines, which we've never used before successfully. Right. Can you talk about the differences between the vaccines? Because you hear people kind of arguing on that also. is like, which one should I take? There's the vector, there's the mRNA, there's like, I don't know, you would know more than me, the different types. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's for the most part, they're just, again, packaged, these Pfizer ones, the Moderna ones, they're packaged in liposomes, which are fat balls, and they've got mRNA inside of them. And then when they fuse to your cell, they dump mRNA in, and then your cells make uh, the spike protein. Whereas the Johnson & Johnson ones, an adenovirus, it's actually a virus that you're injecting, and then that virus goes into your cells and does the same thing. It makes spike protein, actually makes mRNA inside your cells via a virus, and then you're and then inside your cells, again, they make the spike protein. So the, the idea is the same. It's just a bit of a different vector. But I'm especially nervous about injecting the adenovirus into your system, the Johnson & Johnson version of it. And I think governments are too, because you know they're pulling the plug on it in a lot of cases. And there seems to be a lot more issues. But I haven't looked at the data that close, to be honest, just kind of uh, in passing. Those are, the two, those are the main two categories right now. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any data on um, the duration of um, immunity, mm-hmm. the rate division of immunity from vaccines as, as a compared to a natural immunity? Because there's a lot of that yeah. coming up now, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, good question, because it's, it's pretty clear that based on previous coronaviruses, you know, this isn't the first coronavirus we've ever had. There's SARS coronaviruses that have come and gone, and people have antibodies 17 years later and probably 18, 19 years, but 17 years ago when they had a different SARS pandemic, SARS-CoV pandemic, they've, you know, they, they, they managed to keep it at localized and not, it wasn't really a pandemic because it didn't go pan. It didn't go, pan is a Greek word just meaning all, right? It like got everybody. So it wasn't a true pandemic, but it was very localized in the Middle East. And um, they've tested those people's, people's blood that had those infections. And this is 18 years, 17, 18 years later, and they still have antibodies that are fairly strong to that 
coronavirus. And I think that's becoming clear that that's the same situation we're in now, where if you get the natural immunity, if you actually get infected, your body is creating a robust, sustained response. We don't know. It's, you know, we have to wait 17 years to know if it's going to be there 17 years later, but I'll bet it is. Um, that seems to be the direction we're going. And again, that's a whole alphabet, right? It's not just the spike protein. We're talking about A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z. Um, whereas with the vaccine, it looks like maybe three, maybe six months, you know, of immunity is what you're getting, which, you know, again, that information is being really suppressed and really uh, censored. <laughs> and so it's hard to it's hard to go out and talk about this and it's hard to even see these studies but um, and share the studies and get good discussions going on this um, with a nuance to it. But that's pretty clear, especially because there's going to be variants, right? Um, because when your body is making a uh, an antibody just to the spike protein. And then there's a, a little variation like Delta or Theta or whatever the Greek alphabet. I mean, there's literally an entire Greek alphabet of variants just waiting to happen. Um, you're not going to be immune anymore because you're just immune to that one little niche area of that virus. So that was my question, actually. Are people that are more that are vaccinated the ones that are actually creating these variants? Is it, are they the cause? Or Yeah, a little uh, bit. Oh, it's both. It's both. It's people that are, are vaccinated or are not vaccinated. I don't think it matters because... When you're breathing it into your lungs, you're still breathing it back out your lungs. You're still creating some uh, more coronavirus in your lung cells, and you're breathing out those newly hatched versions of it. And again, the ones that are going in your blood are getting shot down with your antibodies, presumably. But yeah, it's a it's a bit of both. It's both people. Mm -hmm. So you're not saving grand. This idea that you're saving grandmother by, you know, getting vaccinated is silly. I'm not talking about grandmother getting vaccinated. I'm talking about you getting vaccinated. Because, again, you can still go in there and infect her if you breathe it up somewhere. And, you know, so people that are getting vaccinated are almost hiding the virus, the fact that that's in their lungs and they're breathing it back out. So there is an argument. Again, if you're being open-minded, which most people aren't, but if you're being open-minded, there is an argument to, that we should at least think about where people that are getting vaccinated are harboring this virus in their lungs and spreading it without even knowing it, which is more subversive than somebody who's actually sick and who's got a fever and who's staying home, right? Because if you're getting vaccinated and you're breathing in the virus, and then you're going to work and you're spreading that virus around with, because you don't feel it, you don't have a big immune response and you're not having a fever. So you, th you think that you're fine and you're spreading it. There's an argument that's valid there, but I don't know for sure, right? Like it, it's pretty probable. Very interesting. So when we spoke originally about my DNA, I believe you said there's a there's a genetic variance uh, about your ability to tolerate viral load. So I think you said that some people are, is that still the ACE two stuff, or is that like just is there? Do you know of or my my talk from a different uh, conversation that some people are more to, more predisposed to actually um, I guess getting viral infections than others at a genetic level. I'm sure there is. I don't know of any genes specific. I mean, there's a few. I mean, there's definitely inflammatory genes, for example, that you can look at people. Like some people make more CRP, C-reactive protein, so they tend to have a hair trigger on their inflammation. And COVID is definitely an inflammatory virus. Most of them are, right? Like being a, a common cold would have an inflammatory response also. And if that bucket overflows, like say you fill up a bucket, with inflammation and you start overflowing, that's when it's a problem, right? Like if you have too much inflammation, you get overwhelmed. So you need to get on these steroids and things to decrease the inflammation um, or take anti-inflammatories of different types. But, and, that, and that's, that's genetic, but I'm not sure about 
viruses specifically. Does that make so, sense? Yeah. So is that like this the the cytokine storm that's happening? Is like that's the inflammatory response? And if you're if you're already inflamed to begin with, you're more likely to spill over. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's a number of these too. Like people say, well, I'll just check my C-reactive protein then. Oh, look at that. It's point zero. It's zero point two. So it's good. Well, there's a lot. And by the way, you don't want to be above one on your CRP. You know, chronically, that is pretty bad. And that's your buckets right at the top. You know. And I've had clients that are like eight on their CRP. I mean, they're spilling wow. over already just day to day smoking or whatever the thing. And that's why sm smoking is so bad, right? It's damaging your lungs and it's filling up your bucket with inflammation. But, um, but you know, people get a little bit narrow-minded about inflammation and they think of it as just CRP sometimes. And it's actually literally hundreds of different cytokines. There's a lot of them. Like another good example is interleukin. There's interleukin-1, there's interleukin-2, all the way up to 24. There's 24 of them. And then there's IL-1A and IL-1B. So there's actually more than 24, just that one. And then there's TNF-alpha, and then there's interferons, and there's all these other ones. So those types of things you can see a bit in the genetics, especially interleukin. People do vary on their inter interleukin cytokine in terms of how much they make. So I do try and factor that in. When I do DNA consulting, I'm looking at those genes, CRP, interleukin, other types of inflammation to see if their bucket's half full already, if their bucket's like just got a little bit of water in the bottom and that helps you kind of approach these things. And it also helps your joints and things like that that are susceptible to inflammation. How is vitamin D influencing COVID? Like why is it so important that we have adequate vitamin D levels? Yeah, it has to do with your ACE2 receptor. It's, mm -hmm. it basically, um, it, it basically in the long term it, it basically keeps that ACE2 receptor a little bit, like it keeps the door handle turned down. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it, it makes sure that the virus doesn't just like open that door readily, easily and come into your cells. Um, the actual mechanism used to be quite debated. I haven't kept up on all the debates, but it's pretty clear that it helps, you know, people that are very severely deficient in vitamin D, you have a lot more issues. You have a lot more, uh, deaths with COVID and it makes sense from a biochemistry perspective. And it has to do with that door handle, the ACE2. So if you're someone who was concerned right now about getting COVID, whether you're vaccinated or not, interventions, maybe it sounds like a good idea to get your de-analyzed, side note, uh, hydrochloroquine, um, ivermectin, vitamin D, um, quercetin, what else are we looking at? Yeah, yeah, like um, metabolic flexibility. I like people to get their blood sugar below 85, get a finger pricking thing. It's called a, a blood glucometer. And by the way, nobody talks about this. Doctors always talk about cholesterol. And, and, you know, it's almost silly that they talk about cholesterol when your total cholesterol is around 200. They try and get people nervous about their cholesterol. But if your blood sugar is chronically fasted blood sugar, if you check in the morning before you eat and your fasted blood sugar is above 85, it's a threefold higher risk of heart disease. Wow. Threefold, which is crazy, right? That can't be good if you get a COVID infection. It can't be good if you're getting vaccinated. None of that. So prick your finger, check your blood sugar in the morning before you eat. If it's above 85, you know, you got some work to do in terms of decreasing carbs, preferably exercising and doing maybe other things that are specific to your genetics. Yeah, that's a good one. That's important to know. Um, cool. That's amazing, man. Anything else that comes to mind that you'd like to share with people as far as uh, helping us get through this insanity? I didn't want to get into the political nature of it. I didn't want to start asking you about what you actually think the motive is behind other than financially. Uh, so we won't go there. We'll keep this as scientific as we can. But if there's anything else that comes to mind scientifically as to why, um, you know, or, or how we can we can look at it or maybe how we can prevent it, that would be um, 
awesome. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. I think we covered a lot. We've covered pretty much the breadth of my knowledge on it without getting into too much detail, hopefully to bore people. No, that was great. Yeah. And I appreciate, you know, you, you bringing me on and, and I hope people understand a lot of this is my opinion. It's not medical advice, but also it's my opinion that's been forged through lots of years of actual academia and writing grants and trying to get money and seeing how the system works and just being honest with you guys, with your audience about how, how the system works, because most people don't work in the system. So it's an interesting, it's very interesting. important to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So thanks. Thanks, man. Your, your social media account, like I'm on social media so seldom and I mute everybody I follow. And you're one of the only <laughs> accounts that I actually listen to because I'm like, every time you post something, it's so useful. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit of political satire and sometimes it's, it's scientific data, but it's always very thought provoking, man. So thank you. I think everyone listening to the podcast should go over and follow you on Instagram, follow you on YouTube. And uh, you, you didn't do a podcast, right? You're just doing the um, no, YouTube I did a few podcasts where I did people's DNA on the air that, that with, with permit with their permission, just to give people a sample of here's what, I mean, we did it together one yep. time, but yep. I've also done several other ones. So I released those as a podcast, but you're right. Like it's basically Instagram and YouTube and uh, yeah, man, I appreciate that. Yeah, man, you're doing such great things and I appreciate your objective outlook uh, always, right? Instead of buying everybody else's BS and bias, just always bringing the scientific data. So the world needs more people like you, man. Keep spreading it. And uh, hopefully we don't get censored. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right. Have a good one. <laughs> That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thank you for your interest in intelligence. Thank you for your interest in science. Thank you for your interest in this podcast. Uh, I really don't take it lightly that you continue to show up. I get so much amazing feedback from listeners week on, week in, week out. And uh, we will continue to bring you the brightest and best minds in the entire world to ultimately support you and your endeavor to live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And one final shout out to our amazing show sponsors from today, Bubs Naturals, MCT powder and collagen that are second to none. And guys, if you're not already using MCT and, poly- and collagen, I suggest most people, if not all, add it to their regimen. Collagen is amazing for your hair, your skin, your nails, your uh, joint health. Uh, it's something that I usually will take pre-workout to improve my joints. And I'll often take it a little bit with dinner or after dinner to improve my sleep. It tends to help uh, regulate blood sugar. And when you sleep because of the amino acid glycine, it really seems to help blood sugar regulation. So if you're someone who's looking to lose body fat, someone looking to, who looks to improve their joints, someone who wants to improve the appearance of their hair, their skin, their nails, and collagen is the way to go. Head over to Bubs Naturals, B-U-B-S, N-A-T-U-R-L-A-L-S, dot com use the code muscle get hooked up with 25 percent off and if you're someone who loves to help others and surround yourself with other amazing people doing the same things you are lifting yourself up lifting others up toward living your greatest life in a body you love share this podcast with at least one person you know and love and if you want to support the show the best way you can support the show is please subscribe on apple podcasts on youtube on spotify so we can continue to bring you the best information in the world and help you Live your greatest life. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.